It's wonderful to be back with you again, especially after, get, after losing my way here. Uh, somehow I got confused between 436 and 1792, but I always allow myself a half an hour to get lost, so... I think the best introduction I ever received was from First Baptist Church in Vancouver, where I lived most of the year. And they had asked me to preach on the doctrine in one sermon, a revelation, inspiration, and illumination. Now, that's a tall order. And I wondered how I could do that in one sermon and hold people's attention. So I decided to talk about Balaam and his donkey, where... God opens his eyes, and you have all those elements present. And the Tuesday, before I was to preach, the secretary called me up, and she said, what is the title of your sermon, uh, concerning which I'd given no thought whatsoever? So on the spur of the moment, I said, well, we'll call it the talking donkey. So when I arrived at the church, which is on a very busy intersection in Vancouver, has a huge uh, billboard, glass encased. There I read, the talking donkey, Dr. Walke. <laughs> My first thought was, now isn't that the truth? <laughs> My second thought was, glad I said donkey. Jeff has asked me to speak on a lecture that I give at the seminary on righteousness in the book of Proverbs when I teach the book of Proverbs. And so I thought it best that we would turn to the text, which I think will be on both the screen as well as in your bulletin, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1, through Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. I may say this is my own translation of it, uh, for you'll see some reasons why. But we read the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know or to gain wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in prudence, in righteousness, justice, and equity to give prudence to the non-committed, knowledge and discretion to the youth. By the way, I translated that non-committed. That's not in any of the translations. Normally, our translations have simple or simpleton there. I don't know that that communicates accurately to the average uh, American reader. We usually think a simpleton is lacking in IQ, whereas in this book, you could be a genius in IQ, and be a simpleton. Uh, the book is primarily addressed to two sorts of youth. It's addressed to the wise son, to the son who is receptive and open to the Proverbs of Solomon. And it's also addressed to the youth who has come through the catechism of the home and of the Israel community, but the youth has never made a commitment, is still open. And it's addressed to the youth before they enter into the city and they're ensnared with easy money with the wicked men and easy sex with the wicked woman. And you can reverse that the other way in our day as well. You can also 
more likely have uh, an adulterous man as well as an adulterous wife. But it's to this, that's why I've translated it non-committed. The Hebrew word pata means open. And they haven't made a commitment yet in life. And they are part of the folly because they love their non-commitment. It's typically American and the open mind with no commitment. So it's to give prudence to the non-committed, knowledge and discretion to the youth or young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. To understand proverbs and parables, proverbs refer to the proverbs of Solomon, and they need interpretation. They're parable-like. And in addition, the book contains the sayings of the wise, and they too are enigmatic. They both conceal and reveal. And then the key to the book, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom and instruction fools despise. Most translations reverse the word order there for normal Hebrew word order. They'll say fools despise wisdom and instruction, but I gave a very literal translation that puts the object first, Wisdom and instruction fools despise. Now, the purpose of my lecture is that we might become righteous in God. And Jeff gave some texts that I might consider on this subject. And the first one dealt with our relationship with the world and the value of righteousness in our relationship to the ungodly age in which we live. So the first text he gave me was Proverbs 13, 6. Righteousness guards the person of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. So righteousness will protect you against the temptation of easy money at the expense of other people and against the temptation of easy sex without taking on the responsibilities of a marriage relationship. The second text he gave me was Proverbs 15.9. This pertains to our relationship with God. 15.9 reads, and I translate the Lord, the, 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 the term I, the Lord is usually a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which means nothing to the average reader. The name Yahweh means I am. He is the eternal one. He's the only one that's existing from infinity. At the base of the universe is the nature of God. He's before all things materially. He is the I am and all that he is a God of love, of justice and righteousness. That is the only enduring reality in this universe is the God I am. I am detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. And what a pleasure it is to be here with a congregation that just sang that hymn who are pursuing righteousness and the ways of God. It's an honor and a privilege to be with God's people. And the fact you sing that 
tells us that we are born again of God because the natural man does not receive the things of God, but we receive the things of God. We are a different species of humanity, and we're walking to a different drumbeat, for we love God and we love our neighbor. And finally, not only protects us in the world against easy sex and easy money, and Ulster fosters, righteousness fosters a relationship with God. But third, it's for our own well-being. Proverbs 21, 21. He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. In fact, in this book, as in all of scripture, it is the abundant life now, and since it's related to the eternal God, it's a never-ending life because our spiritual relationship with God can never perish. It's eternal. So far as clinical life is concerned, long life is a blessing, but not if it's with, without prosperity and honor. And so he puts it all together. This is life prosperity, and honor. No wonder your pastor wants me to preach on righteousness in the book of Proverbs. For as a pastor, he wants you to be protected against the world. He wants you to have a relationship with God. And he wants you to realize and maximize your life. And I'm glad to be part of it. To develop my sermon, I will divide it into four parts that are not in your bulletin. But you may want to jot it down, but I'll go slower here. The first thing I have to do is put righteousness in the book of Proverbs in its literary context. For righteousness and wisdom, as we shall see, are inseparable. It's a subdivision of wisdom. And our first thing I'll talk about is wisdom. The second thing I'll talk about is the relationship of wisdom to the law. I need that a bit of a background to understand righteousness in the book of Proverbs. So I'll talk about wisdom and the Mosaic law. That comment by Richard was extravagant hyperbole. (laughs) I think I know a bit more about Proverbs than I do about the Mosaic law. The third point I want to talk about is uh, wisdom and righteousness. And then finally and climactically, I want to talk about righteousness itself. First of all, wisdom, this broader context, because it says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, in order that you might gain wisdom. Now here I feel a bit like the householder, that Jesus spoke of, who brings out of his, his uh, treasures some things new and some things old. Years ago, when I still knew my way here, uh, years ago, I spoke on the book of Proverbs, and I introduced you to the topic of wisdom. Now, I don't expect you to remember that. Uh, I one time had a secretary, and she says to me, uh, Dr. Walkie, they call me Dr. Walkie, should have been Bruce. But in any case, she said, uh, Dr. Walkie, she said, how do you stay fresh teaching the same course every year? 
and I responded by saying, have a bad memory. (laughs) So it might do well for us uh, to repeat what wisdom is. Wisdom, in a nutshell, is skill. It is masterful understanding. It is expert. It's uh, expertise. So basically, it's skill. You master a field. You understand it. Uh, You're an expert. That's basically what wisdom is. It's used in numbers of ways in the Old Testament. I'll only take two. One way it's used is of artistic and technical skill. For example, we'll read in Exodus 28.3, tell all the skilled men, and the word translated NIV by skilled is the Hebrew word that's normally translated wisdom. Hebrew word is chokmah. Tell all the chokmamim, all the skilled, all the wise men to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as a priest. Here we're talking about a tailor, T-A-I-L-O-R, the kind of person in that day who could go out into the field, cut down the flax, put it in boiling water to soften the straws of the flax, And then he would take the straws and put them on the roof of his house and let them dry. In a process called heckling, he would separate out the strands. And then having separated out the strands, he would, or his wife would, spin it into thread. And then they had a loom, and he would make it into the broadcloth. And then he'd measure the body, and he would fit it to the body. He could make dyes of blue and purple and scarlet until finally he had the skill of taking that raw flax and making it into this beautiful garment that Aaron wore that would set him apart to worship the Lord. That's called wisdom. And it's used numbers of times that way. Whatever your trade may be, Whatever your income may be, you have a certain expertise. And we're all like little dewdrops reflecting the brilliance of God. And he distributes it generously to us, each with his or her own gift. And that's our skill. That's one way the word is used. The word is also used of administrative and judicial skills, the ability to judge For example, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, Moses is complaining that he cannot bear the burden of judging all these people and leading them because they're becoming too numerous. But how can I, says Moses, bear your, and he's addressing Israel, but how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. 
You answered me. What you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the disputes between your brothers and judge fairly, whether the case is between brother Israelites or between one of them and an alien. This is the kind of skill that Jesus has in Isaiah chapter uh, 11, verses 1 through uh, 5 about, as I recall it. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the earth, the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. A Lord will be able to see and to hear beyond the testimony in the court and will be able to discern the heart in order that he might judge appropriately. So it can be used of administrative and judicial skills. And this was the kind of wisdom for which Solomon prayed. But how is it used in the book of Proverbs? In a word, in the book of Proverbs, it is social skill. This is a book that tells you how to relate to your neighbor. How to use your money in community how to speak, all the fine details of life. So what I'm about to give you is the skill of living itself. So if you're having trouble in your marriage relationship, maybe I can be helpful to you. If you're having trouble with your children, maybe I can be helpful to you. If you're having trouble in the office or at your work, Maybe I can be helpful to you. It's a privilege to be here and to empower you with social skill. The second thing I want to take up is the relationship of this wisdom, this social skill, to the, to the law. Evidently, as Complete as the law is, it wasn't completely sufficient for Solomon. When Solomon assumed the throne, he had to write the entire book of the law, which is boast of the book of Deuteronomy, upon his accession to the throne. Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 20. When the king takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests to make sure it's accurate, who are Levites. 
It is to be with him. And he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere, I am his God. And follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And not consider himself better than his brothers and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Can you imagine if our president would copy the word of God every day and meditate in it day and night? That would lead to wisdom and peace and prosperity. Upon his assuming of the throne, he not only copied the law, but he received a charge from King David to be sure he was attentive to this law. 1 Kings 2.1 When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said. So be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what I am your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. And that I am may keep his promise to me If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So he read the law. He heard the charge to keep the law. And yet when I turn to 1 Kings 3, he still feels inadequate to be the Supreme Court Justice of the land, if you please, because he is now over the righteous kingdom and he's to establish the model righteous kingdom of the earth. I read in 1 Kings 3, he wants something more. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, I am appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your slave, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now I am my God. You have made your slave king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child. The Hebrew word here, na'ah, means for child, means inexperienced. I'm inexperienced to be this king. And do not know how to carry out my duties. Your slave is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count a number. So give your slave a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, Now, have you asked for the death of your enemies, 
but for discerning and administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there be, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as King, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. And out of that gift of wisdom, he composes the Proverbs before he violated his own proverb, a Proverbs 19.27, when he said, Stop listening to instruction, my son, and you will stray from words of knowledge. And he tragically stopped listening to instruction himself. But while he was in his prime spiritually, God gave him wisdom, and he gave us the book of Proverbs. Now, how does this all relate together with the law? Let me illustrate it by driving a car. You may have a fundamental rule. You may see a sign on the road that says, drive carefully. But then as you're driving along, you're giving stop signs. You're giving yield signs and other signage, speed limits along the way. But before you can drive, you have to pass a driving test. Now, the command that we have in mind from our Lord and from Moses, the broadest abstraction, you shall love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second, love your neighbor as yourself. That's like drive carefully. That's a broad teaching that we can remember. That's the fundamental idea. Love God and love your neighbor. But what does it mean to really love your neighbor? The signage along the road that's like the stop signs and speed limits is the Ten Commandments. What does it mean to love your neighbor? It means you're not to murder. You are to bestow life upon your neighbor. You're not, to be, you're not to commit adultery. You are to bestow the right to a home upon your neighbor. You are not to steal. You give him the right, bestow to him the right to his property. And you are not to bear false witness. You're not to gossip. You bestow on him the right to his reputation. Now that's the Ten Commandments. That's like the signage along the road. Just basics that you have to have to drive carefully. But as you know, you're not allowed to drive until you pass a driving test. How far do you park when you buy a fire hydrant? Now you have to know it's 500 feet. How far do you park before the intersection on a corner? You have to know it's 500 feet. When do you use your turn signals? When you're making a turn, do you go into the left lane or into the right lane? All this kind of detail, that's more like the book of Proverbs. It takes up those matters that are too fine to be caught in the mesh of the law, too small to be hit 
by the broadside of a prophet. It's this nitty-gritty that's right down there where life is lived. So, for example, instead of you shall not murder, the Proverbs teaches, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him drink. Now, that's another dimension. Yes, we bestow life, the right to life. But beyond that, we give to our person who hates us. That's counterintuitive entirely. Or take the next one. You shall not commit adultery. This is how the proverb puts it. Concerning the noble wife, her children arise and call her blessed. A husband also gets up and praises her and says, Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. That is far beyond committing adultery. In fact, to stand is the highest honor you can give a person because what Job says, when I used to walk into a village, the people got up to give me honor. This is saying that in a home, you want a happy marriage, honor your wife. Stand up to honor her and praise her. You see, that is going beyond the Ten Commandments. Or take, for example, you shall not steal. Bestowing the right to property. Here's his proverbs. A generous person will himself be blessed. For he shares his food with the poor. This is not stealing. This is now giving. And you're sharing. In fact, the matter is, it almost comes down to sacrificing. In other words, you're putting the other person first. This is beyond the law. Yet it's entailed within the law. And Jesus will pick up these same things and make it more fine as well, as you know, in the Sermon on the Mount. But we fail to understand the subtleties and the refinement of the book of Proverbs. And that's why I'm so concerned that in our catechism of our youth that they learn this positive way of looking at life. We teach them the Ten Commandments, but we take that next step to pass the driving test of life itself, of social skill. Well, I've talked now about wisdom as skill. I've talked about wisdom and the law and suggested that the law is a further, that the wisdom is a further refinement of the law. Now I move to righteousness and wisdom. Here I'm arguing it's a correlative term with wisdom. They're inseparable. Let me first of all define, that's a linguistic term, a correlative term. A correlative term is words that mean different things, but they refer to the same referent, extra-linguistic referent. For example, Vice President Cheney. He is vice president, and he is also chair of the Senate. Now, those are different things. He's, as a vice president, he stands next to the president. As chair of the Senate, he moderates the Senate. Two different things, but they are inseparable. If he's chair of the Senate, he's vice president. If he's vice president, 
He's chair of the Senate. The same thing is true of wisdom and righteousness. They are inseparable. If you are wise, you are righteous. If you are righteous, you are wise. They are inseparable terms. Now, it's necessary that these be put together because the word skill can be used of Satan, who has tremendous skill. It's not necessarily a virtue. It's a neutral term. For example, Exodus 7, verses 11 and 12. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers. And the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down a staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So it can refer to black magic. But in this book, it has to be qualified by righteousness to protect that word. It's the skill of living is righteousness. We put back the text. Take a look at the text again. I think you'll see this correlation. What I want you to notice, if you look at the text, is the way it is structured And then I'm going to give you a schematic sketch of its structuring. Notice how it begins and how it ends. To know wisdom and instruction. Notice how it ends. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wisdom and instruction fools despise. In the Hebrew text... To know wisdom and destruction reads da'at hukmah umusah. To know wisdom and destruction. In verse 7, the way the words are arranged, the syntax is different, but it's exactly the same sequence. They play with words, and it wants us to put it together because it says the word for knowledge is the same word to know. So it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of da'at, hakmah umusah, wisdom and instruction. That's why I reversed the word order so you could see it clearly in the original text. It wants you to see that, what we call as an inclusio, that is the frame, wisdom, knowledge, instruction. That's the frame. But now notice you not only have A and A prime, as you'll see, you're going to have B and B prime because verse 2B says to understand words of insight. That matches verse 6, where words of insight are now going to be elaborated upon, where it says to understand, to understand proverbs and parables, the sayings of the wise and their riddles. So this is dealing with the literary skill of reading and understanding, but words of insight now become elaborated into proverbs and into sayings of the wise. Notice then at C and C prime, as you had the comprehensive verse 2 and verse 7, 2A and verse 7, 2B and verse 6, now 3A and 4 and 5 go together where we have to receive instruction in prudence matches, verse 4, 
to give prudence, and then it elaborates with different words of prudence. We call this a chiasm, where you go A, B, C. I didn't get to X, because you'll notice the X is 3B, in righteousness, justice, and equity. That's at the heart. We call that a chiasm from the Greek letter key, and this is normal ways of writing Hebrew. We think linearly this, then this, then this, then this, whether it's chronologically or logically, that's not how the Hebrews write. They go A, B, C, X, C prime, B prime, A prime. That's why people have trouble to understand it. They're trying to follow the logic of it, and it won't follow their logic. They don't understand. They have to put on the language, uh, the glasses, to see how they're putting it together. The way the writers of the Hebrew writers write, it's like throwing a rock into a lake, and then it ripples out from there. The rock where it lands, that's the pivot. Now notice the structure of it. I've given that to you on, uh, in, in your outline to help you to see this. Uh, so you can see where righteousness fits into the center of this. There you see the A and A prime. Comprehensive intellectual values. A prime, comprehensive intellectual values. I give you the words. Then you get B and B prime, literary expression of wisdom. B prime, literary expression of wisdom. Then you have instrumental virtues toward wisdom, prudence, instrumental virtues, prudence, discretion, guidance. But notice the pivot where the rock lands. Moral, communal virtues, righteousness, justice, and equity. As you read through the book, you constantly interplay between righteousness and wisdom because they're inseparable. One looks at it from spiritual intellect. The other one looks at it from ethics of how we relate to the neighbor. That then leads me to my final point, and that is, what is righteousness? In my commentary on the... On the uh, word righteous, I, I have a detailed, comprehensive, terse <laughs> definition, I write, to bring about what is right in harmony for all, for individuals related in the community, and to the physical and spiritual realms. It finds its basis in God's rule of the world. Now, you can't remember that. It's much too difficult. Let me say that somebody asked me, why did it take you 30 years to write a commentary on Proverbs? Well, I go at a snail's pace. I do about, I did about one proverb a day. Well, what takes you so long? I measure my, my advance by how many words I've done. That is to say, every word I had looked up in every occurrence in the Hebrew Bible. And as a result, I know what that word means. It took time until eventually you feel the word. Let me put the word righteous, the Hebrew word tzedek or tzedekah, let me put it in down-to-earth terms. Righteousness is disadvantaging yourself to advantage others. Wickedness 
is advantaging others, even if it means disadvantaging yourself. If you can capture that, that righteousness is your willingness to put yourself second, disadvantage yourself, and put the other person first, that's righteousness. Wickedness is, as was sung in that song so wonderfully just before the sermon, it's being selfish and putting yourself first and the other person second. We think of wickedness as the failure to keep the Ten Commandments. In the book of Proverbs, wickedness is the failure to pass the driving test of these fine details that we have in this book. Wickedness is the failure not, not, uh, failure not to feed your enemy. Righteousness is to feed your enemy. That is counterintuitive. Wickedness, we think of as adultery. But in this book, it's a failure to honor your wife and to stand up in her presence. We think of wickedness as stealing. In this book, it's a failure to be generous and to go through life with an open hand. We think of wickedness as bearing false witness and gossip. But in the book of Proverbs, I didn't recite it, it says this, love stirs up, uh, hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all transgressions. That is to say, I like the way that was originally translated by Derek Kidner and Alan Millard, English scholars. They originally translated that, love draws a veil over all offenses. So that if somebody does wrong, what you're supposed to do is to speak to that person, not to somebody else. By the way, in Leviticus 19.8, where you get the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, the preceding commandment is rebuke your neighbor frankly. Loving your neighbor isn't necessarily keeping silent. Well, that needs a whole discussion about that because that's extremely dangerous. But the point is, you talk to your neighbor. You don't talk behind your neighbor's back. You draw a veil. You do not put your neighbor on the stage. You draw a veil. And if you're seeking your neighbor's good and not your own, why do you gossip? It puts you above your neighbor. So you won't gossip. You're going to protect your neighbor. Now, if you capture that, everything falls into place in this book, and you can carry that with it with you, and that's why I think a more practical title is Wisdom in Shoe Leather. For example, I use an illustration in my class. When I assign a book that's no longer in print, and it's only in the library, if the student who goes there and takes out that book and deprives the rest of the class of its use in order that that student may get an A, regardless of the rest of the students, whatever they may get. That, in this book, is utter wickedness. Because you put yourself first for your grade, whereas you should be seeking to make sure your neighbor gets the A, the other classmates. 
I use it for attending class on time. It is wickedness not to come to class on time. Because what are you doing? You are out there. You want to serve your own conversation and depriving the rest of the class of precious class time. It's selfish. That, in the book of Proverbs, would be wickedness. This will change the way you drive. I I learned to drive in New York. I used to pride myself. I could drive at any speed and break into a line at any point. (laughs) That was utter wickedness, but I didn't know it. Because I was advantaging myself to the disadvantage of the rest of the drivers. I mean, this is wisdom in shoe leather. It means in a public restroom, you clean up after yourself so as not to disadvantage the person who's following you. I'm getting down to where you live. live. (laughs) This is wisdom in shoe leather. This is the wisdom of Jesus that we've been talking about and that the pastors gave us at the beginning of it. He became poor that we might become rich. He gave up his life in order that we might have life. It takes a risk to share the gospel with other people because they may not like it. But you risk yourself because it's in their interest. It's their eternal life. A caveat here, however. Ecclesiastes says, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked. What do you make of that? good friend of mine uh, invited me to uh, introduce him for a chair he was receiving at a distinguished institution, and his lecture was on the book of Proverbs. Uh, The point of his lecture was that you have to pick and choose in Proverbs. You can't take it at all at face value. And his illustration was Ecclesiastes 7, 16, and 18, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked. And do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. What do you make of that? And his point was, who would teach a child, don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked? Well, if we understand these terms, it makes perfectly good sense. Let me illustrate. When I lived in uh, Philadelphia, I taught at Westminster for six, six years there, and I had a corner piece of property, a quarter of an acre, and uh, I should tell you that in Philadelphia, nobody ever moves. It's the most conservative place I ever lived. It's totally unlike Florida. So all my neighbors had built their houses about 1940, just before the war, and None of them ever moved. They were all now in the 90s about. And they were old. Well, I was at that point. <laughs> Can you believe it? I was the young one. <laughs> anyway, I would shovel my sidewalk. It snows a lot up there, so I shovel my sidewalk. Well, now what about the widow living next to me? Well, she can't do it, so I shoveled her sidewalk. And I shoveled her driveway. Took a bit of time. Well, what about my neighbor across the way, the Italian couple? 
that we enjoyed very much. I especially liked the bread she made. <laughs> well, they were in their 90s, so I went over there and shoveled their sidewalk every time it snowed. But now what about Mr. Detweiler back here? And then it came to me, Bruce, don't be over-righteous and don't be over-wicked. In other words, there's a limit to what you can do. And the Ecclesiastes says, why kill yourself? There's a limit to what you can do. And if everybody refused to take the book out of the library, nobody would read it. So you have to have some balance to the whole thing. But if you understand what righteousness and wickedness is, then this begins to make sense. Where does this come from? This is totally unnatural. We are naturally selfish. As Jesus taught us, you have to die in order to live. Life has a reverse screw. I like the illustration Eugene Peterson uses in a long obedience to the same direction. He talked about trying to, he was going to sharpen the blade on his uh, lawnmower. And the first thing he had to do was take the bolt off to remove the blade. And so he got his wrench and the bolt wouldn't budge. So he got a pipe to give himself some leverage. And he pushed hard on it. Wouldn't budge. He got a rock. And began to bang on the pipe so the bolt would budge. And he says, by this time, I became emotionally involved with my lawnmower. <laughs> now, a neighbor was standing across the way observing all this, and he came over to him and he said, you know, I used to have a lawnmower like that. It has a reverse screw. <laughs> Try turn it the other way. And it came off readily, as you can imagine. That's the way life is. It has a reverse screw about it. It's when you begin to live for others that then you enter into protection. God loves it. That's the way God is, who gave up his own son, lavished us with his good gifts in this creation. We are like God. And then you will enjoy life, honor, and God will bless you with prosperity. We sang a hymn earlier on. May God do this for us. This is a gift of God. Chapter 2, he says, my son, if you accept my words, then you will enter into wisdom and the knowledge of God. If you accept it. That takes faith. It's not learning about it. It's committing yourself to it. It's one thing to learn about riding a bicycle. It's another thing to ride the bicycle. It's a matter of our giving ourselves to live by faith righteously. May God grant you that grace.